As of 2022, there are nine countries in the world that possess nuclear weapons. Five of these countries, the Big Five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, are permitted under the 1968 Non-Proliferation Treaty to possess nuclear weapons. The United States, Russia, formerly the USSR, the United Kingdom, France, and China. These Cold War-era superpowers were the only countries that had tested nuclear weapons prior to 1967, which entitled them to these weapons under the NPT. Although the U.S. was the first nation to test an atomic bomb in 1945 and remains the only country to have ever used nuclear weapons in war, Russia currently has the largest nuclear stockpile at almost 6,000 warheads, although this number peaked at almost 45,000 prior to the fall of the USSR. Three additional countries which are not permitted to have nukes under the NPT admit to possessing them, India, Pakistan, and North Korea. The sizable nuclear stockpiles held by both India and Pakistan, roughly 160 warheads for each country, are a subject of concern for many, due to fierce tensions between the two countries over the Kashmir conflict and cross-border terrorism. Meanwhile, North Korea's modest arsenal of 20 warheads poses a grave threat to much of East Asia, particularly South Korea and Japan, due to North Korea's unstable and dictatorial leadership. There is one more country that does not formally admit to or deny possession of nuclear weapons, Israel. Israel is estimated to have a stockpile of 80 to 400 nuclear warheads and is also one of five countries, along with the US, Russia, China, and India, believed to possess the nuclear triad of bomber jets, intercontinental ballistic missiles, and submarine-launched cruise missiles. Although the Israeli government has never confirmed that it possesses nukes, it has been theorized that Israel made plans to launch nuclear attacks on Cairo, Egypt, and Damascus, Syria as a last resort during the 1973 Yom Kippur War, influencing the U.S. to resupply Israeli ground forces and the USSR to warn Egypt and Syria to halt their invasion of Israel. Of course, we likely wouldn't even know about Israel's nuclear program were it not for one man. Espionage, or spying, can be performed through numerous methods. One of the most fascinating of these methods is sexpionage, also known as honey trapping. This technique, famously a staple of the James Bond franchise, involves the use of sex appeal or seduction, usually but not always by a woman, to obtain information or gain access to a person of interest. Perhaps the most famous suspected honey trapper of all time was Mata Hari, a Dutch exotic dancer accused of seducing French military officers during World War I in order to pass information onto Germany. She was convicted of espionage by French courts and executed by firing squad in 1917, though it is well within the realm of possibility that she was not actually guilty. Following World War II, Many male East German spies known as Romeos were sent into West Germany to collect information by seducing women working for the government whose husbands had been killed in the war. In 1952, 
British naval officer William John Vassell was blackmailed into providing crucial military secrets to the USSR after he was photographed at a gay orgy in Moscow. A much more well-known scandal involved a 1961 affair between British War Secretary John Profumo and 19-year-old Christine Keeler, widely believed to have been a Soviet spy as she was simultaneously having an affair with a Soviet military officer. More recently, in 2007, Chinese State Council member Jin Renqing was forced to resign after it was discovered that he had engaged in sexual relations with a woman spying for the Taiwanese government. Beyond just being an interesting diplomatic phenomenon and a common pop culture trope, sexpionage has had an immense impact on international politics throughout history, including when it was used to track down the man responsible for leaking the Israeli nuclear program. I'm going to tell you all about him right now on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 76th episode of this podcast, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Special thank you to Patreon subscribers Barbara, Lisa Chase, and Tom. If you want to receive a shout-out in every episode, among other benefits, help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and becoming a patron. One more thing. Make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. Mordechai Venunu was born on October 14th 1952 in Marrakesh, Morocco. He came from an Orthodox Jewish family and his father ran a grocery store while his mother was a housewife. In 1963, when Venunu was 10, his family fled Morocco due to rising anti-Semitism and moved to a transit camp in Beersheba, Israel. After a brief stint at a yeshiva, Venunu became disenchanted with religion and renounced Orthodox Judaism, but he continued to study at Jewish religious schools in accordance with his family's wishes. In 1971, at the age of 18, Venunu was drafted into the Israeli military, becoming a combat engineer and later an officer. He saw combat during the Yom Kippur War in 1973 and requested a discharge from the military in 1974. After a brief stint at Tel Aviv University, Venunu dropped out, but in 1976, despite not having a college degree, he found a job as a nuclear technician at the Negev Nuclear Research Center. This heavily guarded facility, southeast of the Negev desert city of Dimona, was initially believed to exclusively be a research center for nuclear science, not for manufacturing nuclear weapons. While working there, Venunu was a model employee known for his stellar work ethic, although he was reprimanded for violating security protocol by taking a connecting flight to the U.S. through Ireland. In 1979, Venunu enrolled at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, first studying engineering, but later economics and philosophy. 
While in college, Venunu began to develop left-wing, pro-Palestinian opinions. He became a conscientious objector after being conscripted to serve in the 1982 Lebanon War, instead working as an army kitchen cleaner. And in 1985, he joined Maki, the Communist Party of Israel. After graduating college, Mordechai Vanunu continued to work at the Negev Nuclear Research Center. One day, he reportedly smuggled a camera into his workplace and secretly took dozens of photos of the research facility. Vanunu was laid off shortly afterwards following a massive government cutback, but he received a lofty severance package and a glowing reference letter from his former boss. Vanunu proceeded to work a series of odd jobs, including as a nude art model, and he began traveling around the world. Before setting off on this journey, he began an on-off relationship with Judy Zimmet, an American Jewish woman working in Beersheba. Vanunu then traveled across Europe and Asia, including to Nepal, where he allegedly made plans to travel to the Soviet Union. Vanunu then moved to Australia in 1986, finding work as a taxi driver. He also converted to Christianity and adopted the name John Crossman. Shortly after settling in Sydney, Vanunu was befriended by Colombian journalist Oscar Guerrero, who advised Vanunu to sell his story to the Sunday Times, the largest weekly newspaper in the United Kingdom. Within days, Venunu and Guerrero were flown to London, where, despite having signed a non-disclosure agreement with his former employer, Venunu handed over the photos he took of the nuclear facility and described in detail how he was tasked with processing plutonium for fission bombs. The process described by Venunu was confirmed by American theoretical physicist Theodore Taylor, who taught at Princeton University in New Jersey. To ensure Venunu's safety, the Sunday Times put him up in a rural lodge in Hertfordshire. After he sent the earnings he made from the story to the Anglican Church of Australia, the religious denomination he had joined, Venunu's security restrictions were relaxed and he began making regular day trips into London. September of 1986, while at a restaurant in London, Mordechai Venunu met an American woman from Pennsylvania who went by the name of Cindy. The two entered a romantic relationship, and within days, they were already planning a getaway to Italy. On September 30th, 1986, Venunu and Cindy boarded a flight from London to Rome. But when they arrived, Venunu realized that he had been trapped and Cindy was actually Cheryl Bentov, an agent of the Israeli intelligence agency Mossad. It turned out that Venunu's old friend Oscar Guerrero had sold him out, offering the Israeli government information on a nuclear whistleblower in exchange for money. Mossad decided to get Venunu back to Israel by any means possible to put him on trial. But wanting to maintain good relations with the UK, they decided that they had to lure Venunu out of the country before arresting him. Guerrero had reportedly informed Mossad that Venunu was, quote, lonely and eager for female companionship. 
and that he had a particular affinity for American women. As soon as the plane carrying Venunu and Bentov landed in Israel, three Mossad agents cornered Venunu and injected him with a paralytic drug. Venunu was then put on an Israeli Navy ship back to Tel Aviv, which arrived a week later. It was only then that the Sunday Times published information pertaining to the Israeli nuclear program. Venunu was detained in a prison south of Rehovot, where he was reportedly held in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day. In August of 1987, Venunu's case went to trial. Over the course of his trial, Venunu was not permitted to speak to the media, and when he attempted to do so, his voice was drowned out by police sirens. On March 28, 1988, Venunu was found guilty of treason, espionage, and collection of classified information. He was sentenced to 18 years in prison and transferred to Sheikma Prison in Ashkelon to serve his sentence. The first 11 years of Mordechai Venunu's sentence were served entirely in solitary confinement. In 1998, he was released into the general prison population. In protest of his imprisonment, Venunu refused to speak to guards or eat lunch when it was served, and also exclusively read English-language newspapers and watched British television. On April 24, 2004, Venunu was released from prison under the conditions of a renewable parole. These conditions include not being allowed to leave Israel or speak to any foreigner without government approval and having his internet use monitored by police. After an initial stint living in Jaffa, Venunu moved to St. George's Cathedral in Jerusalem, where he lives to this day. The Israeli government has renewed Venunu's parole restrictions every year since, and he remains under close intelligence supervision. Venunu is a controversial figure both within Israel and abroad. The views espoused by Venunu have seemingly become more anti-Israel over the years, and shortly after his release from prison, Venunu expressed his opposition to Israel's status as a Jewish state. He has also since proposed that Mossad was involved in the assassination of U.S. President John F. Kennedy due to suspicions that Kennedy sought to investigate the Israeli nuclear program and he has argued that the Israeli government treated him disproportionately harshly due to his conversion to Christianity. In 2008, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz described Venunu as, quote, a difficult and complicated person who remains stubbornly, admirably, uncompromisingly true to his principles and is willing to pay the price. Outside of Israel, Venunu has been hailed by many anti-nuclear activists as a courageous whistleblower. Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg has called Venunu, quote, the preeminent hero of the nuclear era. Regardless of whether Venunu is a hero or a traitor, his actions just go to show how much impact on international politics a couple of Polaroid photos can have.
I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. I certainly enjoyed learning about it myself. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash historiaobscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and become a patron. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.